Jesus was a Jew. And the Jews of his day had a particular view of the world, what was wrong with the world, and how the world would be fixed. And that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Jewish story of the world. In other words, for the Jews of Jesus' day, the Old Testament was not simply a local tale about a local people. They understood the Old Testament as, as a claim about what is true and what is real for every person, no matter where they live and no matter who they are. Now, in order for us to grasp the deep significance of John chapter 14 and of our epistle from 1 John, we've got to do something a little different than I normally do in a sermon. We have to back up, and I'm going to need to spend some time here at the beginning telling the story of the people of Israel. Because it's only if we can hear the story of the Old Testament and have it squarely in our imagination, it's only then that that we can break through the whole view of the world that we have that blocks us from actually seeing what's going on in these passages. So like I said, the Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that the Old Testament told the story of the world. And here's how that story goes. There is only one God. And he is the creator of all things. And he created all things, not out of compulsion, but out of the greatness of his loving heart. And not only did he make the world, but it's clear in the story, he delighted in the world. Seven times in the very first pages of scripture, seven times God celebrates the world and he rejoices in its goodness. And then as the final act of his creation, the last thing God makes, humans. And humans are not only, again, something that God celebrates. And not only are humans emblems of the goodness of God, they are also, this is unique about humans, stewards of God's goodness in creation. You see, God made humans as unique creatures. Before he makes everything else, he says, let there be light. There is light. Let there be light. But when he gets to humans, he stops, announces what he's going to do, and then he does it. Humans are unique, and they have a unique role in all of the creation. They have this noble calling to look after the world as God's stewards. Nothing else has that role. Their job is to be fruitful To populate the earth, and get this, this is what's different, to nurture its goodness. To draw out of the earth its good potential until the earth reaches the fullness of the goodness. The earth was like, it's like the whole earth was was an acorn, right? That grows into a forest. And it's the job of humans to cultivate that acorn into the beautiful forest. It actually has the potential of becoming these three things. God's creation of the world. His sevenfold benediction of its goodness. 
and his call for humans to nurture its goodness, these three things show us that the world God made is, number one, worthy of his delight. And number two, this is so important, the world, not just humans, the world is central to God's purposes. The world is not a stage upon which we play out the drama of our salvation. It has a critical role itself. It has integrity in and of itself in God's purposes. So the ancient Jewish view of the world is that God is the creator of all things. He's the ruler of history. He's the king of the entire universe. And that God, that king, when he created the world, he created it to be a good and beautiful place worthy of his delight. And that world is central to his purposes. However, while God made humans with his goodness to be stewards of his good work, the work of nurturing the goodness of his creation, humans immediately rebelled against the king and his kingdom. Humans rejected the goodness of God and traded it in for some lesser goods. Now this is called sin. And through sin, we humans became sinners. And we were born with that in our DNA. And and sin has an effect. Think of sin like a stain. Sin has stained us. Now, it has stained us in two particular ways. First of all, we are stained in the sense that we bear the guilt of sin. We really have the status of guilty as charged. We carry that around whether we agree with it or not. We are guilty. That is our status before each other and before the king. That has disrupted our relationship with the king. We bear the guilt of our sin. And not only is it our status, what is more, we carry not only the reality of our guilt, but every one of us have experienced the feeling of our guilt at various points in time. Moments where our shameful behavior has has been a, a real feeling we carry. So look, guilt works in two ways. One, it's our reality. And two, it's our existential experience. Sometimes we feel it more than other times. Now, the second way that sin has stained us, in addition to having a guilty status and a guilty experience, our sin has corrupted us. This is a different way that sin has affected us. We've been corrupted. We've been broken. And get this, we spread Instead of the goodness of God's creation, like a contagious cancer, we spread the brokenness and the corruption of our own stain. You see, sin is not only present in the chambers of our heart, it is present in the structures of the world. It is seeped out from us like a toxic chemical spill. Not only are our bodies broken and our relationships broken, but in our rebellion against the king and his kingdom, we have plunged the world into the darkness of sin. Cities are broken and art is broken and business and government and nature itself groans under the selfishness 
and injustice and violence that the stewards have reaped. The entire cosmos has become a place of darkness and gloom and rebellion and wickedness and sorrow and pain. The entire created order, the whole cosmos stands in deep need of God's healing power of resurrection. So at the beginning of the Old Testament story, before humans rebelled against the king and his kingdom, before that, what did we see? We see a creation that is tantalizing in its beauty. We see God in a posture of unqualified delight with his creation. We see human beings before sin bearing the very dignity in heaven in themselves. We see humans extending the purposes of heaven to the world in wise and beautiful and just and peaceful ways. We see our relationships, right? The last image on the screen of of Scripture before sin shows up and Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. We see humans in our relationships marked by mutual delight and freedom and flourishing. We see a material world celebrated in beauty and nurtured by loving hands. And this loving coexistence of God and humans and His creation, this is God's purpose. And yet, as a result of our sin, on every level that has been broken, the world in which we now live is the barest image of its original state. God's relationship with His creatures, once marked by delight... God's relationship with his creatures is now marked by grief and holy anger and the justice of judgment. And look at ourselves. Once shining with the full glory of God's image and the deep dignity of his purpose. Now look at us. We've been diminished into a shadow of our former selves. When I was writing this part of the sermon, I was thinking about the wraiths. In the Lord of the Rings, the ring wraiths, a mere shadow of what they were supposed to be. Human relationships, once a source of freedom and mutual delight, now human relationships are filled with violence and shame and fear. And the material world once promised such glorious fruitfulness, right? It was once an acorn designed to become a forest. Now it groans under the curse of exploitation and futility. And because of sin, the whole cosmos has fallen into the tragedy of ruin and despair. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends. As soon as sin occurred, God immediately affirmed his purpose. It hasn't changed. Sin did not thwart God's original purpose for the acorn of the universe to become a beautiful forest. Immediately upon sin, God immediately says, my purpose is still going to happen. I'm going to restore the world to live again under my gracious rule. My kingdom will come. And how does he do this? What is God's response to human rebellion? How does God say, I'm going to fix this thing? The creator God, we saw this in the passage Stephen read, the creator God chooses 
one man. He chooses a nation. He chooses Abraham, who lived in present-day Iraq. And he tells Abraham to pack everything up and to go wandering off as a nomad until he's going to end up in this place, Israel, we call Israel-Palestine. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant he makes with Abraham has some really grandiose promises. Through Abraham and through his children who become a a nation, God is actually going to heal the brokenness of the cosmos. God is going to undo the brokenness and restore creation. Now, unfortunately, as soon as God enters into this covenant with Abraham... They repeat the pattern of their parents, he and his children. The whole story takes a nosedive into chaos. Abraham and his family continually repeat the rebellion against the king and his kingdom. And like the rest of the world, Israel, that's Abraham's family, is filled with overwhelming rebellion. Now this meant... Think about it. It means that the lifeguard that dove into the pool to rescue the drowning victim, guess what? The lifeguard is drowning. The rescuer needs rescuing. And not only, but this is the the catch. Not only is Israel, who was supposed to be the solution, also going down. Israel's dragging the whole thing down with them. It's the lifeguard that turns on the victim and pushes the victim under. The rescuer needs rescuing. So along the way, in the midst of Israel's failure, God does some really strange stuff. His prophets come and speak on his behalf. And he says to Israel, I will not let my plan unravel. I am not, there is no plan B. This did not catch me off guard. I am not thwarted. I will act through a promised king to renew Israel. So that my plan to use you to rescue the entire creation will be fulfilled. And then there are these strange and really perplexing moments in Israel's history. Where God begins to show Israel that Israel itself, in order to save the world, will have to enter into the darkness. And through the darkness that Israel's own suffering, get this, will not simply be a dark passage through which the people of God have to pass. Get this. Israel's own suffering will actually be part of the means by which they fulfill their original calling. And when God starts saying to that stuff, everybody hearing it is scratching their head. We're going to come back to it, but this is the setting that Jesus steps into. At the end of the Old Testament, prior to Jesus' arrival, we have the Jews waiting for the Messiah. They all agree he's going to come and he's the solution. They cannot agree on how he's going to behave, what he's going to look like, or how his vocation is going to line up with all of this stuff. So by the time Jesus arrives on the stage of world history, the Jews have been waiting for God's Messiah. And through the Messiah, they are longing for God to intervene and to move again in love and wrath and power. They are waiting on the Messiah to restore God's kingdom, God's reign over the world. Jesus steps onto the scene and says, I'm the Messiah. I am God's anointed one. 
And by God's spirit, I will bring God's purposes for the entire world to their great and terrible climax. I will rescue and renew the Jews, the people of God. And with my arrival, Israel's long history that I told in a few minutes that stretched for more than a thousand years, Israel's long history with me has reached its climax. Now, this was Jesus' claim. He was crystal clear about this. So clear that the people understood him and said no to the cross. It was so clear. He, he, was, he said over and over in ways that upset the status quo, I am not simply another rabbi offering some new religious or ethical teaching. Do not reduce me to a moral teacher. I am the living God. I am the divine king of creation. And right now, I am reclaiming my kingdom. So Caesar said, oh yeah? You know what I do with people who claim to be taking over? I kill them. And I put a sign over their head that mocks them. They thought they were the king. See, Caesar understood. Rome understood what Jesus was saying. This is the story we get over and over in the Gospels. During Jesus' life and ministry, it's very clear it was not a prelude to the cross. His life was doing something. His life, in his life, in his ministry, something was actually happening in the fabric of the universe that had never happened before. This was a reality. God's liberating power was finally being unleashed. And it was being unleashed how? In Jesus' life and in his deeds. And he was explaining how that was happening by his teachings. So look, what I'm saying is that between his baptism and his cross, Israel's God wasn't warming up. He wasn't clearing his throat. The gospels matter. The fact that so much of our preaching is rooted on Romans and we don't know what to do with the gospels is a problem. We've too long been treating his life as a prelude. Listen, in his life and death, Jesus was establishing his sovereign rule over Israel and the entire world. What did the religious leaders say when they wanted Pilate to kill Jesus? We have no king. It was clear what he was claiming. He was saying by his life and his ministry, the king is here and establishing his kingdom. And Israel said, no, you don't. And Pilate said, Caesar's the only one. Now, this is the story we get over and over. And then what happens at the cross? At the cross, all the battle with evil that Jesus has been having reaches its climax. And Jesus on the cross achieves victory. And finally, it's on the cross that he died at the hands of the evil powers he had already been battling from the beginning. Right at the front of Mark's gospel, he talks about the strong man. You don't enter a strong man's house. He says at the very beginning of his ministry, this is a battle. 
Now, why did Jesus die? Well, we all know part of the reason he died because we've heard it a thousand times. And it's good, and it, we've got to hear it over and over. He died because the status of our lives is guilty, right? And he died in our pay, place to pay the penalty for our sins. That is absolutely true. We must keep saying it and singing it and praying it. But don't miss this. He was doing more than that. On the cross, in his crucifixion, he was also dethroning the rebellious kingdoms of the world. See, don't reduce Jesus' death to your individual program of health and improvement. Think about this last point because this is the main thing we've got to hear in order to move on this morning. The cross was his enthronement. And it's a very different throne than we're accustomed to. The cross was his enthronement. The suffering of Jesus as Israel's representative is the way that God is bringing the kingdom and healing the world. Now, this is a mystery at the heart of the Bible. The cross as the way. We've got to come back to that. But first, let me continue the story. After his crucifixion, Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is the first day of the new creation. Right? Mary in the garden in John's gospel thinks he's the gardener. And she's right. The gardener has returned. Alive from the dead, he is the firstborn of the life that is to come. The king has entered into our history and he's transformed and renewed creation by what? By recreation. See, think of it this way. God created it all. Sin uncreated. And in Christ, God is recreating. And then for 50 days after his resurrection, well, for 40 days, what does Jesus do? He meets with his disciples and then he ascends into heaven. And then on the 50th day after his resurrection, something astonishing happens. 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead... God poured out the Holy Spirit on his followers. This is what we heard about in John's gospel. John chapter 14 is all about Jesus' departure. And he's telling them, now when I leave, when I ascend into heaven, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. Listen to John chapter 14 verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why did Jesus give us the Holy Spirit? Now, to understand that, you've got to go back to the beginning of John's gospel. If you have a Bible, look at John chapter 1, verse 32. Here at the beginning of John's gospel, we find another John, John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin. And he is describing a moment in his relationship with Jesus where he saw something. Listen to what he says. John bore witness, John chapter 1 verse 32. John the author is talking about John, the cousin of Jesus, a different John. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit of God 
came down upon Jesus. So Jesus begins his ministry by receiving the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 14, he tells his disciples, I'm going to leave, and guess what you're going to receive? The Holy Spirit. Do you see what's going on here? This is an incredible moment in the story. It's that, it's that God is doing something here that changes everything. Now listen close. All of, the, all of the gospel writers made this point in different ways. This is John's way of making the point, And it's this. The unique and unrepeatable mission and achievement of Jesus is not only our mandate, it is our pattern for how we live as a church. And don't miss this, because everything about the message this morning builds up to this. This idea, this part of the story, this is the key. And if we don't get this, we're not going to hear what's going on in 1 John. This is the key to understanding what John was doing when he wrote his letter called 1 John. So let me repeat it one more time, and then I'll unpack it. The one-time, unrepeatable life of Jesus is the paradigm, it is the template for the mission of the church, right? Jesus gets the Spirit and goes about his ministry. He says, I'm leaving. Now I give you the Spirit. Guess what John is saying? You're about to do, you're about to mimic. In fact, one of John's most powerful phrases is, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, John chapter 20, and he breathes on them to receive the Spirit. Why does he breathe on them to receive the Spirit? Because the sending of Christ needed the Spirit, and the sending of the church needs the pattern of Jesus' life. The Gospels were written not just to prove Jesus is divine. They were written by pastors who were trying to teach their churches how to live and were showing the life of Jesus as the paradigm for the mission of the church. And we need to drill down into this. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they are the renewed Israel. Through his disciples, Jesus was launching God's renewed people. Israel's job has not been forgotten. What was Israel's job? It was to undo the plight of the human race, to set the human race free to do what it was made to do all along, to be stewards of God's creation. Humans were made to look after God's creation, to make it fruitful, to people it, to nurture its native goodness and to the fullness it was meant to display. That's why John had Mary tell us that she thought Jesus was a gardener. And Jesus did Israel's job. He sets humans free to do what they were meant to do, right? He encounters somebody so overwhelmed with demons they're cutting themselves in a graveyard and he sets them, this person free to do what this person was made to do all along. But here's the issue for this morning. How did Jesus accomplish this freedom? How did he accomplish it? It was through his life and death and resurrection. And here's the part we've got to see. Jesus began his ministry with God pouring out the Spirit on him. 
And now his followers are commissioned and set off on their mission by having the Holy Spirit poured out on them. You see, our passage in John's gospel is Jesus telling his disciples that when he departs, he will commission his little group of followers to continue his mission of liberating the world. So as we'll see in a couple of weeks on Ascension Sunday, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven, takes his place at the right hand of the Father to reign in power over all creation. And one day, right, what do the followers ask Jesus right before he ascends in Acts? When are you coming back? One day Jesus will return. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the creator, the redeemer, and the Lord. But until that climactic day, until he returns, what are we doing? Twiddling our thumbs? Waiting on him to get his stuff together? I mean, is that what he's doing? Is he putting gas in the car? Are we just passing through? What is the purpose in between his, for this moment, between his ascension and his return? The gospel declares in a thousand ways that Israel has not been replaced. She has not been erased. Israel has been transformed through its Messiah, through Jesus, into a new community. How many disciples did Jesus choose? Twelve. Why did he choose 12 disciples? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And he was saying, I am transforming Israel into a new community. And then he pours out his spirit on the disciples and he says, you are Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples as an enormous symbolic act. Israel, God's plan for rescuing his creation. Israel has not been abandoned. Israel has not been replaced. God has not gone to plan B. Israel has not been superseded. Israel has been transformed through the life of Jesus and moves forward through the church. So this is who we are. The church is not merely some extra-religious layer on our already too-busy social calendar. The church is not a club for religious people. The church, in us, the church of the incarnation, we are a group of people redeemed by God, not sitting around waiting until we get away from this place into the by and by. We are a people redeemed by God, called to one another, called to God, and taken up, into the Spirit's work to do what? To carry on the mission of Jesus. Now stop right there. Our challenge this morning is to hear what that means. What does it actually mean that we are to carry on the mission of Jesus? What does it mean for us, the Church of the Incarnation, to, in this particular place, carry on Jesus' mission? Now, earlier I said, the one-time, unrepeatable life of Jesus is the paradigm. It is the template for the mission of the Church. So here's the question. What does it mean for us that the life of Jesus is the paradigm for our Church? 
Ah, there's the rub. Now look with me in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Now Deidre, you gave us a great reading from chapter 2. But 1 John chapter 3, no worries. If I was a better preacher, I would have rewritten my whole sermon on that right there, knowing that God had wanted us to hear that. Augustine did that one time. Somebody read the wrong passage, so he just preached on the passage they read off the, off the cuff. I just am not Augustine. So, Deidre, I can't rise up to what you did for us. 1 John chapter 3. Actually, Scott set the pattern. Didn't about a year ago you did that two or three times in a row? Yeah, this is a tradition of the church. No, just once. I remember. Oh, okay. Look in 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now now wait just a moment. Did Did you catch that last phrase? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that's strong medicine, right? Me to say to Jeremy, you really should be a martyr. You really should die for Jason. Now Jeremy should ask me, why? (laughs) Right? I mean, this is strong. You ought. This is strong language. What's going on is that for John and for the early church, this is so mind-boggling, a central and load-bearing element in what it means to be the church and to continue the mission of Jesus is that we ought to suffer for the gospel. Listen again to verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought... To lay down our lives for the brother. Now tying all this together. Here's, here's how it fits I think. In receiving the Holy Spirit. We've been caught up into the Spirit's work. We are continuing the work of Jesus. And Jesus' life. Is a paradigm for what it means to be the people of God. And as we pattern our life on the life of Jesus and follow Jesus into his world for his renewal in the power of the Spirit, suffering is part of the pattern. Listen close. If Jesus' life is a pattern, suffering was a part of Jesus' life from the beginning. Suffering is part of the pattern. And that was a central teaching in the early church. And it's all, over the, it's all over the New Testament. Now for some of us that's nothing new. But listen what I'm saying. Our suffering is actually like Jesus' suffering. Our suffering. This is what I'm trying to say. It's mind boggling. Our suffering is part of the means. By which we accomplish our mission. It is not something we endure. In order to just get by. Suffering is the means of the mission. Now, 
This is all over the letters of the New Testament. Just a few. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Paul puts it this way. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Do you hear Paul? What he's saying? He says my suffering is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I rejoice in my suffering. It is the means of the mission being accomplished. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. This is a huge teaching in the New Testament. And from the beginning, the church embraced it and lived it out. But in triumphalistic America, (laughs) we would rather talk about your best life now. Here's another one from John. John wrote the Gospel of John. I believe he also wrote the letter of 1 John. And he wrote another book in the Bible. Anybody know? The Revelation. Listen to what he says right in the middle of Revelation. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives unto death. Their loving not their lives under death was a means of moving the mission forward. You see, it's not just that suffering and death is simply the dark path we must tread because the world is hostile to Jesus and his message. We all know that. We all know that if you stand for righteousness, you will suffer. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying suffering is merely a consequence of having a different value system than the world. Now, that's true, and that's in the Bible. But get this. What I'm saying is different. Our suffering for the king and his kingdom, it somehow has the positive effect of carrying forward the redemptive effect of Jesus' own death. Not by adding to it, but by sharing in it. We are the church of the incarnation. This is the sort of people we are. Suffering is part of our mission. Until Christ returns, we are kingdom bringers. But get this, we are suffering kingdom bringers. So as we go forth into God's world to bring justice and peace, that's what Jesus' life was about. As we go forth to do that, we've got to continue that mission. We do this, first of all, because of Jesus' own suffering, right? Because of his suffering, I've been forgiven of my sins. Because of his suffering, I've been made right with God. And I can experience wholeness in my relationship. But get this. We go forward on mission to bring justice and love, not only because of his suffering, but by the means of our own suffering. The slaughtered and enthroned lamb that sits in the center of the book of Revelation, is not only our good shepherd that we saw last week, he is our template. Sharing his suffering is the way we extend the kingdom into the world, not with bombs and bullets. Not with aggressive acts of power toward our enemies. The way of the cross 
is the way of life. Have you ever suffered for Christ and his kingdom? You know what's ironic about this? Is that I'm a middle class white boy who grew up in America talking about suffering, right? What have I suffered? I mean, what I've suffered is so remarkably small when you compare it to the life of Christians in other times and places, right? But it's because the church had this teaching so deeply embraced that it was able to pass through its sufferings. You know what we do when we suffer? We say, God, you've abandoned me. Where are you? You know what the early church did when it suffered? God, you're extending the kingdom. This is a total different way of gearing up your view of reality and the world. We've seen this morning in page after page, and there's so many more, that the strong doctrine of the Holy Spirit that is on page after page in the New Testament, it is precisely about suffering. God gives his church the Holy Spirit. Why? Why does the Holy Spirit dwell within us? Because the same Spirit that enabled Jesus to suffer victoriously is what you need to extend the kingdom through suffering. You have the Spirit in you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of laying down your life. Now, I could go on in John's gospel. He works out. You know how he applies laying down your life in the rest of 1 John chapter 3? By giving your money to people who need it. I mean, I, I could now have part B, right, and say, we don't get to die for our faith, but maybe, maybe we are arrogant and naive to think that we're gearing up for the martyrdom of our flesh when we can't even bear the martyrdom of our wallet. That's what he does in 1 John. And some of us say, well, I can't give that. I can't do that. And John was saying, lay your life down. It's suffering. And by suffering, you are extending the kingdom. Whatever form that suffering takes, it might be relational. It might be financial. It might be physical. This is a strong, this is the doctrine of the spirit. Give, God is giving us the spirit so that we can do what? So that we can pattern not only the power of Jesus' ministry, but the incredible suffering of his ministry. The church of the incarnation, we have been rescued by the cross and transformed by the spirit to bring the kingdom. And as we immerse ourselves in the gospels, why do we have the gospels read every week? Because that's our pattern. It's not just truth. It's a pattern of living. And as we do that, suffering is fundamental And I don't know how that's going to play out in our church. But suffering is fundamental to the way that we will carry forward the redemptive effect of Jesus' own death. Not by adding to it. He died once for all. But by sharing in it. The last book of the Bible, I've already told you. Book of Revelation. At the center of the book is the slaughtered lamb of God. And what we are hearing this morning is that his slaughtering was not simply a one-time unhappy moment that can now be replaced by the Lamb's followers taking up arms. As a church, we have been caught up in the Spirit to carry on the mission of Jesus. And our job as a church in this place is to address the evils of the world that we encounter in the light of Calvary 
And just like in Jesus' life, if we are faithful to our vocation, we will engage the principalities and the powers. And they are cruel, and they are mean, and they are dirty. And martyrdom of one sort or another is what kingdom bringers must expect. Because the way of the cross is the way of life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?